Hey, welcome to Night School. I guess we've already done a, a January 1st episode technically, so I won't wish you a happy new year. And to be honest, I don't feel entirely happy today. I don't feel mad or sad or any particular emotion, but just since I've woken up, I'm just like, oh man, I feel a sense of gloom and doom. Maybe the snow needs to melt. That much appreciated snow might need to melt, but no, that's not it at all. It's not the snow. You think the snow is what I'm upset about? You think the snow is what I'm upset about? No, it's just everything. Because <laughs> that's the thing. You know, I mentioned how it's like, it's funny how this, the, the minute hand changes to midnight and all of a sudden you believe things are different. And they are in some way because everybody's thinking about things being different. That does make things somewhat different. But then you wake up the next day, and I think especially just the general circumstances we're in make you realize that, no, things aren't different. And uh, yesterday, my friend in Canada sent me a uh, a screen cap from his phone because he listens to this show, and so he knows about the Amber Alert joke if that's even a joke, I don't know, but just the idea that the only forced notification we ever get is for Amber Alerts, and that's kind of funny to me, how there's not, we don't get forced notifications about other important events, except for a few weeks ago when I got that forced notification trying to get me to download a contact tracing app, letting you know, like, an expo- a Coronavi exposure app. I'm especially glad I didn't get it. I mean, I, I never would download that. I would never download that. But I'm especially glad I didn't download it, given I very well might have had Omicron. 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 Granted, I may have had that for the last week. I'm especially glad I don't have something telling everybody. I don't. I don't even need to know. If it's not significantly impacting me, I don't even need to know. But anyway, he sent me a, a, a screen cap of a forced notification he got yesterday, letting them know that in his city, in the Montreal area, they're imposing an immediate curfew where you can't leave the house after 10 p.m. And I was curious. I asked him, you know, because I, you know, I don't want to make any assumptions. You know, even though that plays right into my own, I, would, I, don't, I don't know if I'd call it a bias, but it plays right into my own concerns. So I don't want to just assume the worst. So I asked him, I was like, does that mean you just can't go to bars and restaurants after 10 p.m.? Or does that mean you can't even walk around? Like you can't even walk, go for a walk and just walk the streets and get exercise. And he said, oh, no, it means you can't go out after 10 p.m. You can't go out even for a walk. And that is so insane to me. That is so pointlessly cruel and restrictive as someone who walks a lot at night. But even if I didn't, you know, even if I didn't go out at night, I love to go for walks at night. And the idea of having to get home before 10 p.m. I mean, that's something to, to fight forever. And then he said this morning, he was like, well, and they have an exception for dogs. So if you have to walk your dog, you can walk your dog after 10 p.m. And I didn't see that message he sent until just a little bit ago. And right before I saw his message about dog walkers being able to go out, I had just seen online that they've now changed their mind and are saying, 
you can't even do that after 10 p.m. They initially said, oh, you can walk your dog. Now they're saying you can't. And then I asked him about that because I wanted to make sure, again, I want to make sure that I'm getting this right. I want to make sure that I'm not just seeing propaganda online that plays right into my concerns. I make sure to do that. Sometimes I might get caught up in something, but I try to make sure that I'm actually getting the right scoop and talking to somebody who lives in this place, who gets a forced notification from the state on his phone, letting him know, I want to make sure that I'm getting this right. So I just can't believe it. I mean, I can't even imagine them doing that here. You know, I, you know, as I've said many times, like I've, I've been fine with minimal compliance during all this. I haven't felt the need to protest mask rules. I got the initial two vax, vax. I got those. I've, you know, shown a basic level of precaution throughout all this. But when you start telling people they can't go for a walk after 10 p.m., and, the, and what bothers me more about that, it's not that the state is doing that. It's not that the government is doing that. I mean, that bothers me a lot. That bothers me on a very deep level, that sort of authoritarianism. But what bothers me more than that is that there are people who support that. There are people who would defend it. There are people who would say, well, actually, you know, this is this is how it, it, they're doing it because of this. Because I, I don't even know. I actually don't know what the argument would even be in favor of that from the public. Because you have to figure, like, you know, first of all, walking has never been a problem. Like, even if you want to go for the whole six feet away thing. You know, because when the hysteria was at its, its peak in 2020... I do remember like if I was on a trail and there was no way to get six feet away from somebody, you would just, you would each like pull your mask out and just hold it over your face for a second, which I would never do now. But I do remember doing things like that, but at no point was going out and walking in public ever an issue. You know, I could understand, you know, I could understand the logic if the curfew applied to going to public places, but even then it doesn't make total sense to me. Because what you're going to do is you're going to concentrate more people in a place during a smaller window of time, which seems to up the chances that there's going to be some sort of exposure. If you allow people to go to places after 10 p.m., there's going to be fewer people there. And the concentration is going to be distributed among a wider range of hours. So it seems to me like that is actually much safer. Somebody would come up with some explanation for why it's not. But I feel like that's exactly what it is, is an explanation rather than a description of what really happens. But outside of, you know, allowing people to go to the store and bars and restaurants, which is a, you know, it's not that it's entirely unrelated, but it is a separate issue. But the idea of not even allowing people to go outside of their houses. The gravity of that. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to me. It's just unbelievable. Because that is so important to me. And I mean, I think about my friend Mike in Petaluma. And uh, over the last month or two, a couple months, like he'll send me in the middle of the night, he'll just send me a photo of the street. <laughs> He'll just send me like a photo of the street. Cause he's been going on these walks in the middle of the night. And I, 
I, you know, I feel like a cheerleader being like, hell yeah, hell yeah. It's just something basic that I appreciate because I've always done that. You know, so seeing a friend who's taken a liking to just going out in the middle of the night and walking because, you know, it, it's like a playground. You know, you don't have to worry about cars. You don't have to worry about people, which is exactly why the curfew thing is so insane. It's like there's going to be fewer people out. Even when there's no curfew, very few people are out at night, which surprises me. You know, it's one thing if it's after 10 p.m., like a lot of people are getting ready for bed or winding down. But it amazes me how few people walk after dark, period. You just don't see very many. People are in their houses. So why would you limit the few people who want to get out and get exercise? What about people who have work schedules where that's the only time they can get out? It's just insanity. And the fact that some people would support that. They might even snitch on you. Hey, you shouldn't be out there. You shouldn't be out there. Hey, you shouldn't be out there. What do you think you're doing going out after 10 p.m.? The fact that so many people would adopt that way of thinking because, you know, we kind of take for granted the idea of the hall monitor. It's been mocked for years. Oh, what do you think you are, a hall monitor? And my elementary school didn't even have a hall monitor. You know, there was no kid that I ever remember getting designated as the hall monitor. They probably realized what a problem that was. But there were kids who took on that way of thinking just naturally. I don't think their parents taught them to do that. Uh, You know, there was a rule, no running in the halls. I imagine that's universal in all elementary schools. No running in the halls. And I understand why. I understand why elementary schools have a rule, no running in the halls. I mean, it's difficult for teachers to keep track of kids if they're running. You know, they can't herd the kids to and fro very easily if the kids are running. There's chaos, and you know it's potentially dangerous, I guess. Like, kids could run into somebody. I understand why there's a rule about that. But what gets me is kids tell on each other for that. It's not just that the teacher says you can't do that. It's not just that the school says you can't run in the halls. But kids will tell on each other, and I remember kids doing exactly that. I remember in elementary school kids telling on each other for those arbitrary reasons, even when it didn't impact them at all, or telling on kids for virtually any reason. You know, it's like when this kid in elementary school taught me Pig Latin. He taught me. We, he, he, was, uh, he was my tutor. This kid, he, he was my Pig Latin tutor. He, we would study Pig Latin together. No, he just told me what it was. He was like, oh, you, you add, you take the first letter, put it at the end of the word, and then add A. And it's funny how my brain works because I immediately thought, oh, that's a way to mask curse words. That was the very first thing I thought as I was like, oh, because I was like, this is stupid. This sounds stupid. Pig Latin? Like, this sounds stupid. But then I immediately thought, oh, that's a way to mask curse words. And so right after I learned it, I was, I said in front of a girl, Ukfei, Ukfei. And she you know, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't. I wasn't insulting her. I just happened to say "ukfei." I was testing it out. I was testing out this new coded language I was taught by my pig Latin tutor. And so I happened to say that in front of a girl. 
And at lunch, you know, a little while later, I was sitting there eating my lunch and my teacher came up and leaned over and said very quietly, I heard what you said. I was told what you said. And, uh, you know, she insinuated that it was the curse word that I said in Pig Latin. And she was cool. My teacher was a cool lady. So she handled it well. She just said, uh, be careful with that. Don't, don't say that. I'm just letting you know not to do that. And I, I just nodded. But it, what got me is that that girl immediately went to the teacher and just said, Eric said a bad word. It's not like I said it to her. It's not like I said, Akfei you. Akfei uye. I feel so stupid saying Pig Latin. It's not like I went to that girl and said, Akfei uye. Akfei uye. Akfei uye. It's not like I went up to her and, sa- and insulted her. I just happened to say the word fuck. And she thought that it was important to immediately go to the teacher and tell her. And I'm glad the teacher was cool because, you know, I very well could have gotten a detention if that had been another teacher. But it just shows you kids will do that. They will tell on you for running in the halls. They will tell on you for cursing. And we've seen that a lot the last couple of years. You know, our culture has very much, you know, people will do that naturally. They will do that even under the best of circumstances. But we've seen where that way of thinking has become much more normal. We see the way people, we, we see these freak out videos online of people with masks screaming at somebody for not wearing one. You know, there was a, a video everybody was talking about, about the woman on the airplane just screaming. Her mask was even coming off. Her mask was off and she spit on the man. She did everything. She, what she did was substantially worse than this man simply not wearing a mask on the airplane. She spit on him. And she wasn't wearing her mask while she was doing this. She was in a state of psychosis. And that's just one example among many. There's a lot of this. And uh, yesterday, Joe Rogan did an episode with that mRNA doctor. It was a big deal because this guy, he'd been recently censored on Twitter. There's been a lot of suppression of his views And his views on vaccines are, if you're not familiar, uh, Dr. Robert Malone, I, you know, I really have no skin in the game when it comes to that. Like, I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not interested in breaking down like what the vaccine is or even what Coronavi is. I want to know where it came from. I want to know where Coronavi came from. That's important to me because I, I have increasing suspicion that it was created by scientists as many, many do. And that's another piece of even just theorizing about that was heavily suppressed. It's only been recently that some people are able to propose that theory and provide reasoning for it without being censored because people were actually being banned and blocked from social media or for talking about that in 2020. So I, I don't really, I'm not one of these people who enjoys conversations about the ins and outs of the the science of coronavi or the science of the vac i'm just not interested in that it's not that it's not important it's good that people are talking about that but it just doesn't really catch me uh so this this doctor you know he's what he said is that he's he got the vac he's vacked 
but he's against mandates and he's challenging the narrative basically he's challenging what he considers to be some of the flimsy manipulative aspects of the vaccine discussion which you're not supposed to do you're not supposed to give any pushback I mean, you're not even supposed to, you know, I had a really bad reaction to the second Moderna shot, the modern shot. I got the modern shot. I got the modern shot. Uh, I had a very bad reaction to it. It was the sickest I've been in years, and it lasted for about 24 hours. Had a, a whole list of symptoms. And when it kicked in, I mean, it, there was nothing psychosomatic about it. I felt good for hours and hours after getting the shot. And then by that night, I was having a very significant reaction to it. I was completely debilitated. I was shaking. I was shivering to the point of where I couldn't even sit still. Like I was, I was sitting on the couch with a blanket wrap. I think I had two blankets on me. And I was still shivering like I was freezing to death. Just shaking. I got a headache. And then uh, a fever kicked in. Or then I was aches and pains throughout my entire body. Every single muscle in my body, every joint hurt. And then I got a, a very high fever that lasted all night. And sleep was terrible. And uh, it stayed, you know, just, and just a feeling of unease stayed with me for a couple days. So it was completely debilitating. Like, I, I could not function. Like, even just sitting, looking at bullshit on the computer was too much. But there was there were people discouraging you from talking about that. There was somebody I know who was, that I personally know, who was discouraging people from talking about that. Because even talking about your symptoms was considered, anti, you know, being giving a little too much pushback or scaring people into not getting the vac. A citizen, just a, this isn't a doctor. This isn't somebody who's invested at all in the vac itself. This isn't somebody with a position in government. This is somebody that I personally know here in Olympia felt that people shouldn't be talking about that kind of thing because it discouraged people from getting it. When it's just a reality that I had a very severe reaction. Many people did. Many people got sick. And they said that was to be expected. They, they, you know, if I didn't know that that was to be expected, I would have been more freaked out. But at the time, I just thought, oh, they said this was going to happen. But that doesn't change the fact that the, my reaction was very significant. Um, but this doctor who was on Jerogan... Drogan, Drogan, this, this Drogan, <laughs> uh, you know, he outlined some of the other risks with the VAC and, you know, he, he's just, he's questioning the faith people have in it. And he's been, he was recently banned on social media and he's been treated like a pariah. I don't know if he's right or not. I really don't. But I mean, he's obviously, he obviously comes from a place of knowledge on this subject. And it's good to get that perspective because I don't understand why people don't want different perspectives. It's because of this concern that it will influence people. Everything is about if you say if you say the wrong thing, 
people will listen to you and that's dangerous because you're giving them the wrong information. So we want just one train of thought all the time. We don't even want to consider other options. I mean, I paid close attention to the anti-vac point of view. I have friends who haven't gotten the vac to this day. They told me why. And some of them don't even really have a reason. They just don't want to get it. And I understand that too. I respect that too. I've listened to podcasts and interviews with people who are anti-vac. I still got it. I still got the vac, the, the initial two. Now that we're on to others, I don't know what I'm going to do. But, you know, that didn't, they didn't influence me. Even though I agreed with them on, I agree with those people, those anti-vacers, the people who are actually anti-vac. You know, I, I've actually listened to people who don't feel that anybody should get it and they don't trust it. But you know what? Listening to them didn't make me not get it. And I agree with them on many other issues. And I don't even know that I disagree with their anti-vac point of view. I just don't really, I was never invested enough one way or another, but I still got it. And I'm, you know, I have my own oppositional defiance. I have my own issues with the whole idea. But they didn't influence me to not get it. But this idea is out there that if you talk about these things, you're going to influence people to do the wrong thing. And that's the argument for all censorship. That is the argument that people use to support all censorship because it comes from a point of view that people are stupid. I say this again and again, but all censorship comes from the point of view that people are so stupid, they will just do whatever the last thing they hear is or they will believe whatever the last thing they hear is. And the people who are saying that, it makes me go, is that how you think? Is that how you think? Is that why you believe the things you believe? So you believe that somebody hearing the wrong idea is going to make them believe that idea and put it into practice, and that's dangerous. Well, why do you believe the things you believe? Do you just do whatever the last thing you hear is? Maybe. Maybe you're the one who, you, you may, maybe you're the one that we should be worried about. But any, any idea that comes from the perspective that people are so susceptible, which is to say stupid, that they will just listen to everybody and believe that, you know, that's not a very good, that's misanthropy. And I say this over and over again, that censorship is, when you're pro-censorship, it's an admission that you are a misanthrope. It is an anti-human idea. But what I wanted to get into is this guy, this doctor that was on Joe Rogan, you know, he mentioned what he referred to as mass formation psychosis. And I, I don't know that I've, I, I, I must have heard that phrase before, but it's collective psychosis. I've always thought of it as collective psychosis. That's how I was introduced to the idea, mass psychosis. It's all the same basic idea. And he was discussing it in the context of coronavirus. I don't think, you know, I talk a lot about the collective psychosis on here. I've talked about it for years. I mean, the idea of collective psychosis is something that I think about often and have my entire adult life. And there's always some degree of collective psychosis going on. I mean, even just, even for the, the good, you know, e there's even, you know, just living in a civilization or a society or a community, 
there's always going to be an element of collective psychosis. But it's often kind of thin and fleeting. Whereas the last two years, we've seen collective psychosis intensified and sustained to a degree that I've never seen in my life. I mean, maybe the most comparable situation is that immediate post 9-11 period. But even then, I don't remember it feeling anything like this. I don't remember it being anywhere close to this. This is something entirely different. And while the collective psychosis of the past two years can't be separated from coronavirus, I don't tend to think of it with that in mind. This doctor was talking about it, you know, in reference to coronavirus and vaccines. For me, I think of it as a much larger phenomenon. And for me, a lot of it has to do with some of the social issues, the social and political race those sort of topics to me are what I think of when I think of the current collective psychosis. Race being a very, very big one. Summer 2020, because, you know, the thing is, the first few months of coronavirus and lockdowns, I didn't get the feeling we were experiencing a collective psychosis. I think it was also new. And even people who were giving pushback to lockdowns and masks and that kind of thing, they were still coming from a position of, hey, we're still figuring this out. And people who were pro-lockdown and pro-masks, while some people were dogmatic about it, I think people were, were too confused to really be in the throes of a full-on collective psychosis at that point. And a lot of people had this oddly optimistic point of view where there were a lot of people who were, who were still saying like, hey, we're all in this together. Oh, hey, like, let's play lockdown games. Oh, what do you drink? Let's have a Zoom happy hour. Let's have a Zoom happy hour. What are you drinking? Oh, let's play a game. There were a lot of people still doing that. Oh, here's my Coronavi Arts and Crafts project. You know, people kind of had this optimism during that first few months. And that stuff was silly, and I made fun of it. But it was also people just trying to cope, and I understand that. But when I became fully aware of the collective psychosis, it was summer 2020. It was the end of May and into June 2020, and that stretched on throughout the entire summer when the riots and protests and everything that went along with them, the sorts of things people were saying, otherwise normal people, the sorts of ideas that they were taking in and adopting immediately, And that's always shocking to me, how quickly someone will take an idea in. And maybe this plays into what I was saying about censorship, where there are a lot of people who hear something and under the right circumstances just take it in. But we can't operate, we can't censor. Like like speaking of summer 2020, I wouldn't have wanted to censor the, the ideas that people were being exposed to that caused them to experience the collective psychosis, which is still going on. I wouldn't have wanted those people, I wouldn't, I would never want to prevent those people from coming into contact with those ideas. Because it's not the ideas that are the problem, it's the framework, it's the circumstances, it's the people manipulating 
the circumstances to make that happen. It's not the ideas. It's not critical race theory. It's the framework and it's the way that it's manipulated. And that was when I became acutely aware that we were experiencing a collective psychosis. And uh, what was I going to say here? Um, Because I made it a point to be more neutral than I felt. When all that was going on, I made it a point to be more neutral than I felt. Like I know on Facebook, I posted a video of that guy, Killer Mike. I don't even know really what he does. I know he's a rapper. That's all I know about him. All I know about Killer Mike is that he's a rapper. I've never heard his music to my knowledge. Maybe I've heard it in passing in public or something, but I've never heard his music. I don't know anything about him. I'm not a fan. But he gave a speech a couple days after the rioting started where he said, you know, stop destroying stuff. Like protest, but, you know, be organized. If you want to see change, you know, focus on meaningful change. Get involved in government. Vote. You know, he he gave a list of ideas that he felt were constructive ways of making change. And he was saying, don't burn down cities. And I, uh, I shared that on Facebook, not because I fully agreed with him. Because I'm not into BLM. I'm not into that movement. And so it's not that I was saying, well, I 100% support the, the motivations of the protest. But I understand it. I understand why people saw this video and they were upset. I understand why people are upset about police brutality. And I'm not opposed to them protesting. I am not opposed to people protesting, even if I don't 100% agree with the motivations, or even if I, don't, even if I agree 0% with the motivations. I'm not against people protesting for a cause they believe in. But I made an attempt to be neutral and be like, well, you know, protest. If what you want to do is protest, that's fine. But I shared this Killer Mike video because I felt like he made great points that everybody could appreciate. And it was very well spoken. But I realized that wasn't what people were looking for. And, you know, I I was dead wrong, too, at the start of Coronavirus. I didn't I did an episode of this show early on in Coronavi where I said, hey, maybe this will make people forget about all of these distorted social and political views they've taken on over the last few years. And maybe this will make it much easier to talk about some of these issues because we have this much larger, you know, biological issue that everyone's dealing with. Maybe this will actually make it easier to focus on some of these other things that have been causing us grief. I was dead wrong. You know, I I try to admit when I'm wrong, and I was dead wrong. I was extremely naive, and I should have known. I should have known that people who already weren't mentally well, who weren't happy, being locked down in their houses, wouldn't make having some of these social conversations easier it would make them that much worse. And that's exactly what it did. I should have known, but I didn't. I naively believed that everyone focusing on the pandemonium pandemic would make those conversations better. It was the opposite. I now know that.
I'm not Nostradami. Nobody should ever mistake me for Nostra- Nostradami, because I, I was dead wrong about that. But I made an attempt to be neutral during that initial wave. Not that anybody was looking to me. And I think I even said things on this show that weren't necessi- that didn't necessarily reflect how I actually felt. But I was making an attempt to be neutral because I was like, maybe there's some way... If people like me make an attempt to be neutral, maybe there's some way to bridge this gap and prevent full-on psychosis, full-on destruction. Maybe there's some way. I learned very quickly that wasn't going to happen. I learned very quickly that any attempt at neutrality, any attempt at nuance would just cause you to be lumped in with the enemy. And so the collective psychosis was in full bloom by summer 2020, and it lasted the entire summer. And I saw it in the way people were talking. I saw it in the panic and hysteria. Like I think I mentioned on here how a woman I used to work with who was in her 40s, very sweet, fun woman, always a, a what we call a blast, to hang out with, like when we would have drink, when coworkers would have drinks, she was always a blast. Like her and her boyfriend were a blast to hang out with. She wasn't concerned with any of this stuff. She was never concerned with any. She was not uh, not a politically correct person. You could you could joke with her about anything. And by June twenty twenty, like she invited me to some Facebook group. There was all a bunch of liberal women sharing resources on race and like ed- trying to educate each other on like the history of racism and like what you can do. And she sent me multiple invites because I didn't join. And there's a guy I know, he's from my hometown. He was one of the few people in my hometown who was into underground music and stuff. So. We would go to shows together, and he's a good guy. He's a great guy. He's a good guy. He's a great guy. Oh, he is. He's a good guy and a great guy. He's both good and great. I like him. Uh, but I saw him saying some things, too, during that time where he was like, how can we get people on board? Like, some people are going to be left behind. They don't get it. They, they don't understand. He was this, experiencing this sort of hysteria where it was like, these people won't be saved if they don't get on board. If they don't get on board with this, with this anti-racism movement. And you could tell he was panicking about it. Like, I don't know who he was thinking about, but he was basically feeling like if, if someone doesn't agree with this, how can we help them? Which is a, a much healthier viewpoint than some of the others, which is just make them your enemy and ruin their lives. But I noticed it too, and I mean, it... it infected women more than anybody else not women alone but it definitely seemed to be female driven at least what i saw we're like that was such a surreal period because i would get on instagram and i would see everybody was posting story after story both about current events that were taking place like what was taking place at the protests which were very selective they they would show i mean cuz there was police brutality going on during the protests there were police attacking peaceful protesters 
and you would see people talking about that, but you wouldn't see people giving any attention to the riots and the destruction and the murders that were taking place during riots when they didn't fit that person's narrative. And that person may not have even seen those things. Because I realized that more and more, that a lot of people didn't see it. I was trying to pay attention to everything. I was watching live streams of what was going on downtown Olympia. I was watching live streams of Portland. I was making sure to actually see footage of everything that was taking place. The events that preceded something bad happening. It's like with the Panzer Division Kyle Rittenhouse, that neo-Nazi who drove a, a Panzer tank over state lines. Um, it's like with him, like I saw the video of everything immediately after it happened. And there were people who didn't see that until this trial this year, but I saw the video of what happened with him as it happened. And so I, I, I was completely unsurprised that he was acquitted, rightfully acquitted too. So I made it a point to try to observe everything. But when I would get on Instagram, I would see like these these Instagram stories that were hysterical. And they were also sharing these infographics and resources because, as I've said before, there's a certain type of person who loves infographics. They're the same sort of person who loves day planners, the same sort of person who like posts a picture of their brand new day planner. And they're like, I'm excited to announce that I bought a new day planner. It has floral print. You know, it's the same sort of person. They love infographics. And so there, it was just, there were all these infographics, like, you know, that people were just, they were just being streamlined right into their brain and explaining these very complex ideas and giving people a whole new set of buzzwords and catchphrases to use. They were being manipulated in real time very quickly, and people were taking advantage of that. They were taking advantage of the panic and hysteria that people were experiencing. And the other thing I saw a lot of that made me realize it was more than just people consuming information, uh, you know, especially biased information. It was the videos. A huge number of younger women I know, women under the age of 40, just about every day they were posting a different Instagram video, you know, selfie angle with their eyes really big. You know, I always talk about that. If you don't know about the eyes by now, well, listen to every episode I've done in the last year. But uh, I was noticing the big eyes with the whites above the iris, bugged out eyes. And they were basically proselytizing and preaching and trying to educate people. It was all based on educating people. And that's a word that's gotten rotten. That word is rotten, educating, educator. There was a shift a few years ago where teachers started being referred to as educators. And then common people started to see themselves as educators as well. And so when I hear the word educator and educating, it gives me pause. But there were all these, especially younger women, trying to educate people. And uh, the entirety of their existence during summer 2020 was dedicated to that. And it was sort of, you saw the phenomenon too of the person who stops clapping first is suspect. You know, in North Korea, they have these uh, 
Um, when uh, Kim Jong Il died, when the father died, Kim Jong Il, there was a documentary that showed people kneeling before his statue, crying hysterically, and it was fake crying. You know, we can all recognize a fake cry, whether it's a baby or an adult. We know somehow we as humans know when somebody is fake crying. It's almost like the uncanny valley. We know when something's fake. And these North Koreans were all fake crying. And it was really embarrassing to watch. But they were doing it because they could suffer very real consequences if they don't cry over their god dying, Kim Jong-il dying. And there was this idea presented where it was like the person who stops crying first or isn't crying hard enough is suspect. And it's like the phenomenon of the person who stops clapping first is suspect. And you got that feeling during summer 2020, where it was like, the person who stops posting infographics, the person who stops preaching first, becomes suspect. And there's a girl I know here in Olympia. She was my ex-girlfriend's roommate, who just totally caught up in this stuff to an insane degree. I remember her even like kind of she posted something where she she said like people better be doing this in three months like people better you know basically people better never stop doing this because she considered herself a true believer and she was basically saying like oh you know see you've all joined the trend well you better be doing this forever so people operate that way. And it's what I talked about when I went into Target a while back. I hadn't been to Target for a while. And I noticed that most of the mannequins were fat. And maybe that's a reflection of our obesity rates. Maybe that's a more accurate depiction of how people look in our culture today. But I noticed that most of the mannequins at the local Target were fat. Because I'd heard about fat mannequins. I had heard whispers and rumors about fat mannequins coming to town. The fat mannequins are coming to town. Got some fat old man, fat old mannequins coming to town. That's stupid. But uh, I heard rumors about fat mannequins, and then I, I noticed that I started to see them. But I went to Target, and I noticed it was mostly fat mannequins. And I was like, nobody can stop this. Nobody is allowed to say that's enough, because in that meeting in the back of Target where the employees are having some company meeting, the person who says, oh, hey, I've noticed that three-fourths of our mannequins are fat. Maybe we should cut down on that. That person immediately becomes suspect. How could you possibly say we have too many fat mannequins? Oh, you don't like fat people, huh? You don't like fat mannequins, huh? You don't like fat mannequins, huh? You know, the, the second that you give pushback on these ideas or you stop or you become less vocal, you become suspicious to people. Or if you don't say anything at all. Because I, I can tell, I can promise you, there are people who know that I've never posted something online that explicitly supports BLM. I can tell you there are people who are, who are acting like Santa Claus out there who keep a naughty and nice list in their head. I mean, they do it about their own birthdays. There are people who, because social media, you know, because Facebook tells people when it's someone's birthday, there are people who sit there and they remember who wished them a happy birthday and who didn't. And they resent the people who didn't. They have that negativity bias. There, there are people who do that. That's not 
That's that's something that people do. I've heard people talk about that. I've seen people express that. Like there are people who have become so narcissistic, so hungry for validation, that they operate from this mindset that says, "Thanks, thanks for wishing me a happy birthday, some of you," and big fuck you to those who did. Oh, dude, fuck you! You didn't wish me a happy birthday. You know, there's people who operate from that mindset. It's like everybody is the significant other who's upset about their their spouse not remembering their anniversary or their birthday. Everybody thinks that way. Not everybody, but there's a lot of people who just approach life that way. And when there's some collective psychosis where everybody's concerned about a specific issue and you have to be concerned about it in a very specific way that puts you on the right side of history... You're expressing this and you're very aware of who isn't. You're aware of people who are expressing something counter to what you're saying, but you're also aware of who isn't saying something. And I can promise you that many people cataloged in their brain a naughty and nice list. Oh, you didn't post the black square, but you can see the sort of mess that people are in where I thought that was so interesting, the black square issue. Because a bunch of people on, I don't know what day it was, June 1st or something, all these people made their profile pictures a black square. You're welcome to do that. If that's the statement of solidarity you want to make, go for it. But you can see where there's a, people try to form kind of like a hierarchy, kind of like that girl being like, well, I've been talking about this all along. And like, you guys better still be talking about this in a year. You, you better be posting infographics and preaching to the choir in a year or you're not a true believer. You can see where like the true believers try to single out the false believe. They try to like single out the false believers through all this because this whole this whole uh, idea came out like after people use these black squares. There were a bunch of people being like, the black squares actually aren't good. The black squares actually detract from the conversation and add little of substance. You're actually wrong for posting the black square. Even though you're posting the black square in support of this cause that I've devoted myself to, you're actually wrong for posting the black square because it distracts from the real conversation that's taking place. That was a real talking point that I I heard many times. So it's like, even when you try to do the right thing, with that in mind, it's not enough. And I've learned that the hard way. That's true for any group, but this is the group I'm talking about. You know, I, I remember, I think I've mentioned this story before, but years and many years ago, my girlfriend was kind of, you know, being weird. She was very liberal, she was very far left, and she was being kind of weird. And I donated to a cause, I donated money to a, a cause just so I could tell her. Really pathetic of me. Really a pathetic gesture. I should have known. My motivations were impure. I didn't support this cause. It was a cause that I could kind of justify. It wasn't a political cause. But I donated to a cause essentially so that I could just casually mention it to my girlfriend thinking that it would make things better. But you know what? I got what I deserved. 
And this is what happens anytime your intentions are impure. It usually flies back in your face. I told her about it casually, and she was like, I do that all the time. I donate it to them anytime I have extra money, and I donate more. And I was like, oh, shit. Good lesson right there. That, you know, she's a true believer, and she's mad at me. The relationship's falling apart. So there's no way I can appease her with that crumb. That crumb. And not only that, when I tell her about it, she's basically calling me out and saying, like, well, I do that all the time. Oh, you did that once? Well, I do it all the time. Uh, and even that's not enough. Because it's never enough. All the, what's, What goes on with all of this is it's never enough. You're never true enough. But, uh, you know, there's people who, they're very well aware. People who were tapped into, people who are tapped into a collective psychosis, they're, they're well aware. You know, you think about people who post photos of themselves getting the vac. They post photos of their children getting the vac. People catalog that stuff in their mind and they go, good. He's good. She's good. Yeah, I can't help I can't help but notice you haven't posted a, a pro vaccine statement. You haven't made a pro vaccine statement. I'm starting to wonder about you. It sounds absurd, but I guarantee you there's people who think that way. I told you you, the listener, how somebody when the when the vac started making its rounds, how a, a guy I know who's completely gone he's the same guy who I mentioned I was helping him move years ago he was gone years ago I was helping him move and we were carrying some boxes and he had a, he had a big stack of boxes that he was carrying and I just jokingly said oh hey you're the box man and he goes I'm the box person and he wasn't correcting me he was like reconciling it in his own brain. He had been conditioned to say person instead of man. Even though he was a man, he wasn't gender fluid. He wasn't transgender. But in that moment, like just me saying, you're the box man, because you were carrying a lot of boxes. He said it back to himself as I'm the box person. And he wasn't scolding me. And that was even more telling to me than anything. The fact that he wasn't correcting me saying, man, it was like in order to, it was as it, because like how that would have normally gone, if that conversation had been normal and not between me and someone who's experiencing mass psychosis, that conversation would have gone, hey, you're the box man. And he would have said, uh, yeah, I'm the box man. But instead he said, I'm the box person. But that same guy earlier this year, or I guess last year now, uh, he, uh, he messaged me out of nowhere and he was like, have you gotten the vaccine? And I thought that was so strange. It was such a personal question too. But as I said before, people don't see this as personal health. They see, this, they see the vaccine, they see your public health in general as public domain now. And even though there's the argument, like, and what's made them think that is like, oh, well, you're, whether or not you've got the vaccine is affecting other people, which I don't, I, I'm not going to push back on that. That's the idea, is that you can infect other people. The, the, you, your status 
during the age of coronavirus impacts other people. But asking someone that directly, sending them a text message out of the blue, especially someone you don't talk to very much, and knowing where he's coming from, knowing where his brain has been at for years, the box person, to have the box person message me and say, have you gotten the vaccine? That's a very personal question. That's an invasive question. And I I knew what he was doing. I knew that he was testing me, even though he would never admit that. I knew that because he knows enough about me to know that I push back on some of this stuff. I don't think he knows exactly what my opinions are anymore, even though they've stayed the same. But he's gone so far out there, I don't know that he understands me at all. But I knew he was testing me. I knew that he was seeing if I'm a believer. Have you gone to? Did you go to church today? That's basically what the question was. And that happened to me during summer 2020 as well, where a girl that I used to hang out with all the time, who I still have a high opinion of, but she's tapped into all that stuff, where she sent me a message in June of 2020 and said, hey, me and some friends are doing a... a a walk through like a we're going to be walking through some neighborhoods in protest of what's going on do you want to come and i said you know i support you doing that because it was she was going to be peacefully protesting i don't support walking through people's neighborhoods even peacefully i think that there's there's an implicit threat to that i don't think you should go into residential neighborhoods ever and do that but I told her just to be, again, I was, I was attempting to be neutral because I didn't want to make things more polarizing than they were. I didn't want to ruin relationships with people over this stuff. I realize now that, you know, it did ruin some relationships, whether anybody knows it or not. It did permanently impact my view of some people. Not that I think less of them as human beings, but it, it certainly makes me not want to interact with them. It makes me not trust them. But I said in response, I had to think, I was like, oh shit. Because once again, it was a test. She was well aware of the fact that I hadn't said anything online in favor of this BLM movement. She knew, because they were paying attention. In addition to professing these things themselves, like I said, they were making their own naughty and nice lists. They were paying attention to what everybody was doing and who was doing it. And I can guarantee you, and I don't think this is paranoid thinking on my part, that she was aware of the fact that I hadn't said anything explicitly for or against what was happening. And she was testing me, trying to get me involved, but more importantly, testing me to see how I would respond. And I just said, hey, you know, I support you doing that. And I, I was very careful in my language because I didn't want to say I, su- I didn't want to lie and say I, I support your cause because I don't. But I wanted to let her know that, like, I'm not against you peacefully protesting for something that matters to you and that you think matters to everybody. But I, I, I was a little bit insulted because I knew what I knew what the message was all about. It was a test. It was a, a purity test. So uh, that was what was going on. That's the way people were thinking. 
and people who are more socially dependent, not that they depend on other people for practical reasons, but people who are more dependent on people for emotional reasons will give into that right away. They will give right in. And if somebody's in a relationship with somebody who's doing that to them, they will give in as well. Like a friend of a friend, uh, you know, an old friend of one of my closest friends was telling him how his girlfriend was pressuring him to go to those protests and how he didn't believe in it and didn't really want to, but his girlfriend was putting the screws to him over it. And you're going to compromise in that situation. It's a, that's basically going to make or break your relationship. It shouldn't, but it has the potential to. So a lot of people are going to be like, you know what? The, the path of least resistance is just to go along with it. So there's a lot of people in relationships who are influenced to do things they wouldn't otherwise do because of that. And then that extends to just friendship and social groups. In order to maintain the st- your, your place in the status quo, you have to participate. Even if deep down it's not something that you truly believe in, or maybe you just have a more nuanced view. It's not even necessarily about explicitly agreeing or disagreeing. It's maybe just having a more nuanced view, which is, of course, lost. It's lost in all of that. I mean, during that time, simply having the viewpoint that we need a police force, but police should be monitored and scrutinized, and perhaps we need some sort of reform. Perhaps we need to rethink how police approach their job which is, I agree with that. If you think I'm a cop fan, you got another thing coming. If you think I'm a cop fanboy, oh, dude, thin blue line, man. Dude, I got the, this is a thin blue line show. I'm going to make a, an every night to school night flag, and it's going to have the thin blue line. Now, if you think I'm a cop fanboy and I don't recognize what cops are capable of, you got another thing coming. We're seeing that now with the vaccine mandates. There was a video of cops in New York singling out a child, terrorizing a child because his parents went into a restaurant without vaccine passports. You know, we've all seen police brutality videos. But I don't think we should get rid of police. I certainly don't think we should get rid of police, but the collective psychosis had intensified to such a point that otherwise moderate Democrats were saying, yeah, you know what? It it might be a good idea to defund the police. It might be a good idea to abolish the police. There were a lot of people who took that way of thinking on because that that was just part of the psychosis. And at that time to even say, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't get rid of the police makes you suspicious to people. But how quickly people adopt those views, because a lot of those people had never even considered the idea of getting rid of police. And we're seeing now where they're, like in these cities where they defunded the police, we're seeing where the very people who defunded them want them refunded. Not refunded. Give them a refund. No, we want them to be given more funding because we're seeing what happens when you defund the police. And then that kind of gets into my next point. You know, I don't know that I have too much more to say about collective psychosis, just that summer 2020 to me was 
the most insane collective psychosis and mass hysteria I've ever seen. And I haven't forgotten it. A lot of people moved on. A lot of people stopped posting the infographics. A lot of those people, all of them stopped posting these selfie videos preaching about the cause. They stopped trying to educate people every second of the day and correct people every second of the day. They just kind of moved on. It's not that they walked anything back. It's not that they changed their views fundamentally. But that's the scary thing about a collective psychosis is people can just let go of it like that. They can just kind of move on and act like things are normal. I can tell you it's not normal to me now. I have not forgotten. There, there are people who have permanently lost my trust, not because I don't trust them on a practical level. Like, it's not that I don't trust them. Like, I trust them in the sense that I know they wouldn't steal from me. I would trust them to, like, feed a, my cat if, if I was out of town. I don't have a cat, but I would trust them to do something practical. But I don't trust their foundation. Because I know they are capable of getting caught up in that storm, I don't trust them. They're, they are too flimsy. And I haven't forgotten about that. It was so striking to me. It was so striking that I will never forget it. Um, but moving on, you know, the police thing makes me think of like, a part of this too is how anti-etymological everything has become. There's this anti-etymological view where people are rewriting the definitions of words, rewriting the origins. It's anti-etymological because people are changing the origins of words. And we, we saw that in the mass hysteria where there's this revisionism where words are defined based on how we feel about them in the moment rather than what their origins are. And the police thing made me think about that because there was this very popular talking point. And I saw it in these education groups, like in that Facebook education group I got invited to because it allowed me to read it. When I got invited to it, I, I didn't join it, but I, I, I wanted to see what people were saying. And I saw these talking points all over the place. And one of them was that police the concept of police began as slave patrols. And maybe some slave patrols did become police in certain parts of the country, but people are operating from this viewpoint that we didn't have police before slave patrols. Like the idea, like, you know, what do you think all of these civilized, how do you think all of these civilizations functioned? throughout the entire history of our species, you don't think there was policing? Where did these other countries, you know, where did these foreign countries get the idea? Does Europe have police today because we had slave patrols in the U.S. and they were like, that's a great idea. You know, it was just an insane idea, like completely, this completely revisionist take on the origins of policing. as if civilization hasn't had guards, as if there hasn't been some sort of security force working for the state or the empire throughout the entire history of our species. Even if they were just an extension of the military, which our police are, 
You know, the police in the United States are paramilitary. But that's the idea. That's what I'm getting at here is that the idea of policing, you know, there's always been a paramilitary force who tries to stop people from breaking laws and enforces the law and carries out certain duties on behalf of the state. And they often are there to maintain the status quo. There's often many issues with them. And the United States is not the worst example of that. But there were many people who had this idea that policing started from slave patrols. And that's why we should get rid of it. And you can't challenge that. When someone says that, you can't stop clapping. To challenge that is is to advocate for... I don't, I don't even know, man. It's insane. And... That's sort of this revisionist history, but we've seen this revisionism with words as well, where it's anti-etymological, where if a word sounds a certain way, we've seen that with words that have uh, black in them. You know, black has always been used as a euphemism for negative. Humans have always feared darkness. Bad things have always happened at night. Darkness has always been our point of reference for evil and just the negative in general. Darkness, blackness being absolute darkness. But people started getting upset about any word that uses black in a negative way, implying that that kind of, you know, is applied to our view of black people. And that some of those words were developed, you know, as some sort of, you know, anti-African-American euphemism which isn't true at all for most of these words, few if any of them. And these style guides and reference guides used by journalists, I've seen them, have started discouraging them from using these time-honored euphemisms that use ideas like blackness and darkness in a general sense, but to stop using them because they imply something about black people. So it's you know, challenging the very roots and origins of that terminology, which has nothing to do with race. I mean, you could just as easily say that those euphemisms refer to people with dark eyes or people who wear dark clothes. I mean, you could just as easily apply it to that. I mean, and people do think that way. Like when I was in high school and I got into metal and underground music and I started to wear more black, this kid that I grew up with went up to me one day and he said, I've noticed you start wearing a lot of black. Maybe that's sort of a post-Columbine way of thinking, but he, he said that to me. He didn't change. He was always nice to me. He didn't demonize me. But to him, like wearing a lot of black, which meant like I, I wore a lot of black t-shirts. I started wearing black t-shirts, band shirts all the time. And because this kid was just very normal, he had no idea what those bands were, or what, what it meant to be into that stuff. But in high school, like I, I wasn't a kid. In high school, I didn't wear all black all the time or anything. I just started wearing black band shirts almost every day because that's what I was into. But this little kid, and he was, he was this little short kid, 
<laughs> and and he, he went up to me and he, he was just like, I, I noticed you've been wearing a lot of black. Like it was of concern. And that's because it's like darkness, blackness, negativity. You know, we have that association. And, uh, you know, I see it too with like, for example, there was this controversy a few weeks ago. I mentioned it briefly on here where like these well-known, famous leftist socialist, out, openly socialist, you know, they can, it's, this isn't me being like, they're all communists. Oh, Democrats are all socialists. Democrats are all communists. This isn't me doing that. This is, these are guys who actually consider themselves Zomer socialists, and they're famous on Twitch. How a couple of them got banned for using the term cracker. And Twitch said, you're using a racial slur. We're going to ban you. And these guys gave a lot of pushback because there's this idea that it's not racist if you're punching up. Which, you know, why even if you're against using slurs, okay, if you're going to make the argument that white people are favored in our system and have more power, if you're going to, I'm not, I'm not going to dissect that argument here. That'll be, I'll be here forever. But if you're going to make that argument, you know, why do you even need to make a slur to begin with? Why do you even need to mock those people to begin with? But then you come up with this justification that allows you to do it. Oh, I'm not just making a racial slur. I'm punching up. I'm punching up at the people with power. So they were making that argument. But then I saw the anti-etymology work its way in, where these guys were saying, not only am I punching up, but the, the term cracker comes from whip cracker, meaning slave master. And I saw a number of people saying this, and I realized that a number of many people believe this, that the etymology of the slur cracker for white people comes from slave masters cracking their whips. I had never even thought about that. And I, I, I know that I've read the etymology of cracker many years ago and that people have tried to research it. And it goes back to Shakespearean times, whether or not that's the exact ter- the, the whether or not it was adopted because of that here, I'm not sure, but there was there there are numerous the term has been in use first of all, and its roots go back to Shakespearean times, so it has nothing to do with slavery if we follow that etymology. And then there are many other there 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 are many other very uh uh you uh, what am I gonna say here I gotta think about it um it's been traced back to other circumstances in America involving farmers involving poor southern whites but even those don't derive from slave masters and whipcrackers and. One possible explanation for that connection is that white farmers cracked a whip at cattle because we're at a place now where even just cracking a whip is is directly connected to slavery in people's minds as if whips never existed for anything else. So even if we go with the whip cracker idea, the etymology of that is that farmers cracked whips at cattle when doing farm work. So there's no evidence that the term cracker has roots in slave master, cracking a whip at slaves. There's no evidence of that. But people said that. 
as an excuse for using the word cracker, which I, under normal circumstances, I couldn't care less if somebody calls me a cracker. I do like a fair playing field where if you're not allowed to use a slur against one person, I don't think there's any use to allowing, it just creates resentment. You know, if white people are so powerful that you should be allowed to call them a slur, that's only going to build resentment. That's only going to make things worse. And at what point, like if the tide changes, let's say that you topple white supremacy. I mean, they change what they change what that means all the time. So, you know, and, and there's an industry that wants white supremacy to exist so that it can continue to fight it. But let's say we officially, capital O, officially topple white supremacy. At what point does it become inappropriate to use cracker? At what point is it no longer punching up? At what point are you punching down when you use that? Um, but what I realized when, with all these people who earnestly believe the term cracker refer, has its roots in slave master, you can't challenge that. You're not allowed to challenge that. Even though it's anti-etymological, even though it's revisionist, you're not allowed to challenge that use. It's like being the first one to stop clapping. It's like being the, the one to say, hey, maybe we have too many fat mannequins in Target. You become suspect if you challenge that. Somebody can just say, I think cracker comes from whip cracker, which is to say slave master. And you're not allowed to challenge that without making yourself suspect. Why do you care? Why would you challenge that? That's how a lot of this thinking goes. That's how this hysteria, this panic, this mass psychosis works, is to challenge it at all or to actually look at the true roots of the word is to make yourself suspect. To say that, oh, hey, you know, the idea of policing doesn't come from slave patrols. Even if some slave patrols metastasized into the police force in certain places... The idea of policing doesn't come from slave patrols. But to say that is to, you know, you make yourself suspect. And a good example of the hysteria surrounding words is last summer, Disney made an effort to change the name of Boba Fett's ship in Star Wars. You heard of Star Wars? In Star Wars, Star Wars, uh, you know, Boba Fett, his ship is called the Slave One. So you can see where I'm going already. And Disney released a toy, and they changed the name. Even though his ship has always been called the Slave One, it's part of the Star Wars canon. Star Wars has slavery. I read some expanded universe books as a kid. Chewbacca started as a slave. Like Chewbacca's backstory is that he was a slave and Han Solo freed him. That was his original story. I don't know if that's been changed because Disney, when Disney bought Star Wars, they changed a bunch of the expanded universe. They changed a lot of the backstories. But so Star Wars has slavery, and for whatever reason, Boba Fett, who's a bad guy, I think people forget that Boba Fett is supposed to be a bad guy. He's become so popular. They've retconned Boba Fett. But Boba Fett's ship is called the Slave One. It's always been called the Slave One. I don't know the I don't know if there's an explanation for it, 
but it's kind of a cool name for a bad guy's ship, the Slave One. But Disney released a toy of it, and they changed the name of the ship. And I don't know how far they've taken this, but it came out that they're making an effort to distance themselves from the name of the ship. They're trying to distance themselves from the term slave. Why? Well, because of all this. They believe that calling Boba Fett's ship slave, I guess, brings to mind American slavery, the slavery of African-Americans, that people can't even hear the word slave now without correlating it with the enslavement of African-Americans. Insane. It's insane that you can't even use the word slave. Slave only applies to one set of circumstances, even though the entire history of our species is filled with slavery. There's slavery going on right now in different parts of the world. You can buy and sell slaves in the Middle East. The Middle East. You can buy and sell slaves right now, but because slave brings to mind one period of American history, even though slavery is a part of our entire species, and I mean, I'm sure the, I'm sure the phrase like, oh man, I've been, I've been working like a slave. I'm sure you would lose friends over that if you said that now. Yeah, I've been working like a slave all week. Oh, sorry, I can't go to happy hour. Oh, dude, I'm so sorry. I can't do Zoom happy hour with you this week because I've been working like a slave. Fuck you. Dude, dude, fuck you. Did you hear what you just said? Dude, you're a fucking cracker, dude. You know, it's you can't even say that, I'm sure. But that shows you how far it goes. That shows you how intense the mass psychosis is. Boba Fett's ship can't be called the Slave One because it's too reminiscent of something. Even though it's a fictional world where slavery exists, even though our world has an endless history of slavery. You ever read the Bible? You want to know about slavery? But uh, it's funny, I was talking, since I'm just on this subject, I'm just going off about it. You know, I was talking a little while back about how they made a movie recently or a TV show. I'm not sure if it was a TV show or a movie, but it was about Anne Boleyn, King Henry VIII's wife. And they decided to have her played by a black woman. And how that's just, it's such obvious posturing. It's such obvious pandering. It's not a creative decision. And it's not an arbitrary decision where where they tried out a bunch of women where they were like, well, let's get her. She seems like the best fit. It's clearly a deliberate decision to, to get points. To be like, look at us, we're casting a black woman as Anne Boleyn, even though that's completely ahistorical and distracting. And I talked about how there was an IndieWire review of it where the girl, the young liberal girl, reviewing it was like, the show sucked. And the only great decision was casting that woman as Anne Boleyn. So you can't, even reviewing it, even though this girl thought that it sucked, she couldn't say anything negative. She, not even that she couldn't say any, anything negative about that casting decision, but she had to clarify that she thought that was a good decision. She had to keep clapping for that. She couldn't stop clapping for that. And so it just shows you the insanity. But I saw the other day they, they came out with a Macbeth movie where Denzel Washington plays Macbeth. And Perfect timing. And again, it's what I, when I was talking about the Anne Boleyn thing, it'd be one thing if that just existed in a vacuum. But it's like we know their intention. 
We know they're trying to make this bold statement to pander to this cause, that this is influenced by this hysteria and this mass psychosis, but it never happens by itself. You know, we see this trend of it's not just diversity casting, it's very deliberate decisions made to pander to this movement. And what makes it so obvious is that it's happening in everything. It's happening all the time in everything. And with this black Macbeth, with Denzel Washington as Macbeth, it's like the fact that that came out a month after the Anne Boleyn movie. It's like you guys are all doing this at the same time. You're making it obvious. It's like your friend buys, you know, a, a cer- your, your friend starts, dre- your friend gets a certain haircut and then you get it a day later. And it's like, well, hey, you're following a trend. You know, you didn't just think that haircut was a great idea on its own. All your friends got that haircut and now you got it and we know what you're doing. You're a poser. So that's what happens with these casting decisions. It's not that I'm sitting here like they should never cast a black person in a movie. Oh, my God. You, can you believe they let a black person play a, a character in a movie, in a fictional story? It's that it's a trend and they're all doing it. And it's not just a trend. It's that it's, it's part of this movement. And they're trying to get points from that movement. And that movement is informed by this mass hysteria. And then once again, though, to question that, to say, hey, you know, why would you cast an African-American woman, or I guess she's British, why would you cast a black woman to play a woman who we know was white in history? Why would you do that? There's nothing particularly creative about it. It's like, maybe we should have Joan of Arc played by a man. You know, there's nothing creative about that decision. It's, a, it's this, supposed to be this bold statement, but it becomes less bold when everybody's doing it. When you have Denzel Washington play Macbeth, and he might be great at it. This isn't an indictment of anybody's ability. But people tend to not even like these stories anyway. It's like they came out with a, a few years ago, there was controversy because they made a Ghostbusters reboot where they're all played by women and people said it sucked. But then when you, when you say that it sucked, people go, Oh, well you just didn't like it. Cause it was women. Oh, you just didn't like the Anne Boleyn show movie movie show because it was played by a black woman, which is why the indie wire girl had to say the show sucked, but great decision casting the black woman, you know, so you can see, you got to keep clapping. Because if you stop clapping, they know you're suspect, you're the enemy, you're not a true believer. And you see that up and down the board. And it's not for black people. I mean, that's an important point in all this. They don't do that for black people. It's not that black people are out there, and I'm not speaking for all black people here, but it's not that black people are out there thinking, oh man, I really wish there was an Anne Boleyn movie where I felt represented. Oh, I really wish there was a a Macbeth where I felt represented as a black person. Black people aren't out there thinking that. There might be a few, but that's not how black people think. Because I've seen this sort of response. I've listened to interviews with black people where they address this very issue. And they feel pandered to. They feel like it's cheap. 
And it's not something they're even interested in, in to begin with. Like I said, the average black person isn't out there going, man, I wish there was an Anne Boleyn movie where I felt represented. I wish there was this historical, uh, this movie about historic British royalty where, where the king's wife was a black woman. And it's like what I talked about, that remake of A Christmas Carol where Bob Cratchit's wife is a black woman that I saw a year or two ago. Same thing. I don't think black people are out there going, man, like A Christmas Carol is such a great story. I sure wish Bob Cratchit's wife was black so I feel represented. And what's so funny about that, too, is they aren't doing this with other ethnic groups. They aren't doing this with other groups of people where they're not making a movie where there's a Mexican Macbeth. Hey, it's Mexican Macbeth. They're not doing this. There's not a Southeast Asian Anne Boleyn. They they do it with black people in particular because that's the ultimate statement in this crowd, in this way of thinking. And if you if you say something about it, like what I'm saying now, be like, oh, you have a problem with black people, huh? What's your what's your what's your beef with black people? See, they, they it turns into one of those situations, which is dishonest, manipulative, and worse. There's people who actually believe that. They actually believe that that's your response. They actually believe that's where you're coming from. But you can see where people's view of things is very distorted. Like there was a poll a few years ago, because, you know, black people, I think they make up, for a while it was 13% of the American population. It might be higher now, I'm not sure, but it was less than 15. Black people make up less than 15% of the population. But they did a poll, they polled people, And people believed, they were asked, like, what percentage of the population, the American population, do you think is black? And people said 33%. They believed the the black population was 20% higher. They believed that black people make up a third of America, which isn't true. But in large part, that's because black people are heavily represented. And uh, it's, it's strange that the idea is representation, but... When one group is heavily presented, it causes people to believe that group actually represents a much larger percentage of the population than they actually do. So people are coming from that point of view, that black people represent a third of America. But it's interesting that we don't see other groups. You know, we don't see Asian people being cast in these roles. We don't see Mexican people. You know, and what does that tell you? Well, the statement involves casting black people. It's just how it is. It's how it's been set up. But again, it's not for black people. It's for progressive liberals, white liberals, to be like, I am participating in something progressive. You know, I told the story on here about how a guy that I used to drink with in town recommended me a a modern sci-fi graphic novel comic book a graphic novel comic book and he was telling me about it he was telling me like about the story he he was just giving me some he was was recommending it to me and he goes and it's so progressive and I immediately just kind of raised my eyebrow because I was like that's a selling point because I would never you know I would feel the same way if somebody said and it's so conservative and there's people who that they get into that 
There's people who get into things just because they're conservative, and they're playing the same game I'm talking about here, but they're far less common. We don't see that in mainstream media at all. What we do see is things that are being sold on the grounds of it's so progressive. It feeds into the mass psychosis that that's necessary. And I actually ended up buying that comic book. I bought it for my girlfriend, but I broke up with her before Christmas, and so I couldn't give it to her. And so I was like, what the heck? I'm going to read it myself. And I enjoyed it. I could, t- I could see what was progressive about it, but it wasn't in your face. But then there reached a point where there was a panel, and it was a full-page panel where like the little girl in the story goes into a shower room, a woman's shower room, and there's a full-page panel of a, a trans woman with a penis. And the little girl is shocked. She stares at this trans woman with wide open eyes. And then there's this big bubble, this big word bubble, where the trans woman explains how like women can have penises and this and that. And it's way too in your face. If they had worked that into the story naturally, if they had simply had a trans woman with a penis and maybe made fleeting reference to it, or just made that seem like a normal part of the story, that would be one thing. But they had this PSA, and it really read like a PSA. And the entirety of the comic, because this was a ways in, this was quite a ways into the series, the fact that they suddenly had this PSA, I was just like, this just completely takes me out. I'm no longer immersed. And this is what he was talking about when he said, and it's so progressive too. I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is for people to go, oh, I'm reading something progressive. I'm not reading a story where progressive themes are worked in naturally, which you're going to find everywhere. You're going to find progressive themes in all media. But it wasn't worked in naturally. It was presented as this sort of PSA, and you just kind of go, wow, this is a little too uh, in your face. But you recognize that that's what people want. They want to watch something and go, like, I'm watching the Anne Boleyn movie with a black woman. And that's so great. So great they did that. You're not thinking like, oh, she makes a great Anne Boleyn. You're thinking this is so progressive. It's for that audience. It's not for black people who are just sitting there feeling like they've been left out of Anne Boleyn movies. And what gets me is how quickly people adopt these views, like talking about summer 2020, where a lot of mainstream Democrats very quickly were parroting this idea of defunding or abolishing the police like they as if that was something that they always believed and they can't believe that you don't believe it. And I I saw an interview recently. There's a British woman. I'd seen her on a there's a guy in Olympia who does a podcast and he actually had her on as a guest a couple years ago. She's a a woman in England, and her whole thing is like she feels that distinction needs to be made between trans women and women. Someone would say, what do you mean? They're all women. And that's that's what she's pushing against is like she doesn't feel that she, she feels that women need their own bathrooms and their own changing rooms and their own space. And in this climate, she's been made out to be a bigot, doesn't hate trans women. She's simply, just like what's happened with J.K. Rowling, this woman feels that something is amiss and that biological women need their own space as they've always had it. And she was being interviewed by this older, gray-haired British man 
An older gray-haired British man. It's a horrible accent. I've already been told by an English listener that my accent is horrible. It used to be better. I used to have a better British accent. I just don't practice it. That's my excuse. But uh, an older gray-haired British man. And she was talking to him, and he was asking her about her beliefs. And she commented that, you know, she believes in biological women. And that biological women need their own bathrooms and their own space. Um, I don't care who comes into a men's restroom. I personally feel weird. Like, I used a bathroom at the Evergreen State College that was unisex, a unisex public restroom. And it was weird because there was a girl who came out of the stall while I was pissing, and I didn't like that. You know, I, I didn't feel right about it. I didn't feel, and she was just a girl. You know, she was just like a, a college girl, but I was like, ah, I don't like that. I don't like the idea of holding my dicky and urinating, knowing there's a girl in the stall next to me. It just felt weird. And not because I'm conditioned to feel that way. It just felt kind of dirty and weird. I don't know what it was, but that's the only time I've experienced that. And I'm, you know, I'm against multi-person bathroom, as I've said over and over again. I think going back to one of the, maybe the first or the second night school about pee shyness. As a pee shy guy, as a, as a pee shy guy, I believe in single occupancy restrooms. It's not entirely practical. It would be expensive. We might have to wait in line for longer periods of time. But I think we should all just use single occupancy bathrooms. Or every bathroom should just have stalls with no openings on the bottom. I think we need more privacy in bathrooms, period. As a pee shy guy, I find bathrooms discriminating. I find that our bathroom system is it discriminates against pee shy guys like me. But I also realize I'm weird. I also realize that I'm neurotic and it's a pathology in me that makes me pee shy. It makes me better. It makes me superior that I'm pee shy. Makes me less of an animal. And I mean, as you can, as I've spoken about before, like stadiums and other places, they have troughs. They have piss troughs. They have a trough. It's, there's not even separate urinals. They just have a trough. That, and all men are just standing shoulder to shoulder pissing. It's humiliating. It's inhumane. I'm a fan of single occupancy restrooms. So I'm not even coming from the point of view of, oh, Trans women shouldn't be allowed to use restrooms. I think nobody should be allowed in the restroom with me. Nobody should be allowed in the restroom while I'm in there. I want my own stall, and if I can't, you know, or my own locked door. But anyway, to get back to the point, like this this British feminist, and she's a feminist. She's like a traditional feminist. She would have been considered progressive up until three years ago, four years ago. But she was saying how she believes biological women need their own spaces. And this older British man, who I would say he's, I would say he was easily 60 years old. I would say he was probably in his 60s. He goes, I find your views staggering, to be honest. I find your views quite staggering, to be honest. And I was like, you're staggered that she believes that? You believed that up until a few years ago, man. I don't know who this guy was or what his background was. But I was watching this interview and I was like, you're staggered. He used that word staggered because this woman feels like restrooms should be for biological women. 
And this guy who probably believed that up until five years ago is staggered that she thinks that way. And that's what I mean, where it's like people adopt these new views, which is okay. It's okay to change. If this guy was introduced to new information that led him to conclude that trans women should be allowed in women's restrooms, that's fine he, if he believes that. That's fine. But he, took, he, he came to believe that late in life. And now he's shocked when someone doesn't believe that. And that's what gets me, is that people take on these beliefs very quickly. It's like defund the police. You took that belief on very quickly, very suddenly, and now you're shocked and offended when someone else didn't take it on or is even just slower. Like maybe some people will eventually come around to your way of thinking, but it's going to take them more time. And when they're demonized for it, they're not going to go there. They're not going to think your way. You can't convince them against their will. They're going to push back. So when this guy was like, I'm, I, honestly, I'm quite staggered. I'm staggered by your views. Because I've been told things like that myself. I mean, earlier this year, a woman that I know here in Olympia told me that she's shocked by some of the things I believe in. I don't know what she was referring to. She doesn't listen to this show. And, I, you know, I even censor myself on this show. I don't say everything I believe on this show because, you know, I don't need to. I don't want to go too far. Uh, you know, not that I think it's too far, but I just, I, I do want to have some level of restraint. I don't want to respond to everything emotionally. I want to actually think about what I'm saying, but I don't even know. I, I think she was responding to just a couple things I said on social media which are anything I say on there is, is going to be far more neutral. It's going to be far more restrained than anything that I would say to friends or even on this show. And so I don't know what exactly she was responding to, but she was like, frankly, I'm shocked by some of the things you believe. And I, I still don't know what she said because I didn't care at that point to keep talking to her. It may have been in response to like, I had said something about the right side of history. And I was like, you know, anybody who talks about the right side of history is coming from a place of self-righteousness you know, which often ends up placing people on the quote-unquote wrong side anyway. History usually looks back on self-righteous people who are participating in a mass psychosis as the bad guy. Like if we want to go with the neo-Nazis, or if we want to go with the old Nazis, the original Nazis, the ONs, they believed they were on the right side of history too. You know, anytime you're, you're self-righteous enough to believe you're on the right side of history, as if you know what the, the audacity and hubris of that. And, and I said, you know, if, if you want to see where the, what the right side of history is, go to a graveyard, go to a cemetery. That's the right side of history. That's the most you can hope for as far as right and wrong and the future go. You're going to be in the ground there. And you're lucky if you'll even be remembered at all. And uh, so I, I made a statement about the right side of history being just self-righteous. And I mean, it's part of this mass psychosis. You know, it, it's basically being saved or born again. Making a decision that places you on the right side of history. You might as well be a born again Christian trying to save your soul. 
And so I don't know if she was responding to that because, like, you know, I, I, I think I, it was a video or something, just like I was just ranting or something, and I said that about the right side of history. And, I, you know, I've also made some comments about that are anti-censorship and pro-free speech. That's the most usually that I venture into polarizing topics, which – let me tell you, free speech and anti-censorship is not controversial. If you think that topic is controversial, you're controversial. And you're probably not on the right side of history. Not that I believe in the right side of history, because I don't. But she said, like, I, like, frankly, I find, you know, some of your beliefs quite shocking. And so she was responding to probably the most benign of my beliefs. But it made me, when, when I heard this British guy say to this feminist, like, quite, when she said, like, I believe in biological women, and he's like, quite frankly, I find your views quite staggering. You know, it's, I was just like, wow, it's staggering. How melodramatic of you. Someone believes something that you believe just a, a matter of years ago, and you're staggered that she believes that thing that you believed. But see, you've been converted. And when you're converted, people often give the most pushback to people who are doing something they used to do. It's why some people lose weight and get on this anti-fat kick. Because it's like they want to distance themselves from that way of living or way of thinking. It's why some people quit drinking and then become basically prohibitionists and are like, drinking is all bad. Oh man, drink alcohol is all bad. I used to drink and alcohol is all bad. When you, when you quit doing something that you think is bad, there's a strong urge to demonize it because you're separate. You have a new identity and you're trying to separate yourself from it. And so that's why these people are staggered or shocked when somebody believes the thing that they believed up until recently, because they're like, I can't imagine believing that even though you did believe that. And that's a sign of mass psychosis. If you find yourself shocked by people who believed things, who believe things that you believed until recently, and most normal people still believe in, I think something's going on with you. I think you're experiencing some sort of psychosis, a mass psychosis, which plays out on the individual level. But it's different from a personal psychosis in that if somebody's mentally ill and experiencing an individual psychosis, the delusions they're experiencing only exist in their own head. And they might be dogmatic about that. Hey, man, you know, the government, the government is coming after me. The government is coming after me. You know, someone who believes like the government is persecuting them, who believes CIA agents are in their driveway every night. That's a delusion they're experiencing themselves. And when someone says, dude, I don't think the CIA is outside your, your house every night. Yeah, they are. Oh, you're, you're crazy. I'm not crazy. You're crazy. You know, that's in their own head. And there's nobody else who's confirming that for them. Nobody else is confirming that individual psychosis they're experiencing. They're experiencing it alone. And that's what makes it a individual psychosis. But the difference between a mass psychosis is that person might not be experiencing any delusions about their own individual life and experiences. 
But their delusions are confirmed by the people that they're around. Their delusions are confirmed by their social group, by what they pay attention to. And that's what makes it a mass psychosis, is that it's an entire group of people experiencing the same delusions together. And it's like a feedback loop where they all confirm that and reinforce it and encourage it. And so that's what makes it distinct. But I think some of the symptoms are the same. Some of the behavior is the same. I've talked a lot about the eyes. You can see it in someone's eyes. And there are mass psychoses going around in general. I mean, the the QAnon thing is obviously a collective psychosis. I mean, you know, there there are some people out there who are into the QAnon stuff who kind of have a a tongue-in-cheek approach. I've seen them. Not everybody who is into that stuff wholly believes it. To some of them, it's like they might agree. They might be right-wing, but they kind of have a sense of humor. It's sort of the 4chan crowd. You know, there's those 4chan type people who might be into QAnon, but it's kind of a funny thing to them. They might support it because they're just into the chaos of it all. But there are people out there who don't buy into it, but there are people who genuinely believe it. There are normal people who somehow got tapped into QAnon who genuinely believe some of those ideas. And so that's a mass psychosis unto itself. And, you know, I saw a video by a a QAnon mega type woman who was just hysterical over Donald Trump being pro-vaccine, vaccine. Uh, She was just hysterical, even though he's been pro-vaccine all along. He was the original pro-vacker. He was very proud that he was going to get to unleash the vac while he was still president. But they decided to announce it after the election, which the day after the election, which was a little suspicious. But uh, Donald Trump, he's all along. He got the vac early. He and his wife made a a public statement about getting the vac. Donald Trump still has always been pro-vac. But he made some more pro-vax statements lately. And this woman who was a QAnon, you know, type made a video where she was just hysterical about it. Like she felt betrayed. And that just means you're not paying attention. You, you worship Trumpsfeld, but you're clearly not paying attention to him. You're clearly not listening to him because he's always been pro-vax. But you could see that she's experiencing this collective psychosis with this other group of people who think the way she does. But I believe that's a much smaller part of the population. And we're not seeing that reflected in mainstream media and entertainment. You know, and this other mass psychosis that centers around identity and race and coronavi, we are seeing that in mainstream media and entertainment to a much more significant and larger degree than the people that they are opposed to, like the mega types and QAnon types. We are seeing, it's very obvious which mass psychosis is reflected in the mainstream. It's very obvious which mass psychosis you're allowed to publicly denounce and which one you aren't. And part of it depends on who you know and where you live. But we can see 
which way the media leans, and it leans there heavily. We can see which way the entertainment industry leans, and again, it leans hard that way. So that's something to consider in all this, is that there are, there are multiple mass psychoses going on, and they're always going on to some degree. Like I said with 9-11 and just anything else, just being in a society at all is to participate in some level of mass psychosis at any given time. But we're seeing where the circumstances we've been in have escalated it. They have escalated it. And I don't know where we go. I don't know what we do. Because you can't get people out of that. You can't break them out of that way of thinking. And to even to be the first person to stop clapping makes you suspect. So to give pushback on top of that, you know, that's just you're creating problems for yourself. All you can do is not participate. I don't know that there's any other option aside from simply not participating. Because people who are experiencing mass psychosis will never acknowledge it or admit it. And the sad thing is, once it's over, they'll just act like everything is normal. Because we've seen where that's what people ended up doing after summer 2020, where those people still believe some of those ideas. Many of the people who got caught up in the hysteria of summer 2020 still believe much of that. And at any point, it could become activated again to some degree. And if you were to try to engage them in a conversation about it, you'd figure out real quick they still basically believe that. But you can see right now where people are walking back the defund the police movement. These cities that defunded the police are going back to funding the police again because they're experiencing, amazingly, defunding the police created an excess of crime. And so we're seeing where they're walking that back, but not admitting that they got caught up in a, a panic or a hysteria. They're not admitting that what caused that was the mass psychosis. And that's, an, that's, and that's a practical issue. Like funding and defunding the police is a very practical issue. You can measure it. But many of these other things are immeasurable. And people won't walk those back. But they continue on like everything's normal. They act like they weren't caught up in that. And I'm very well aware of that. And that bothers me more than anything. That people, some people want to act like everything is back to normal. We can see right now, too, with Coroni, the way that the new variant has played out has led people to question whether some of these measures are necessary. And I've been surprised, actually, to see in the mainstream media, some people have thought, hey, you know, maybe we don't need to do X, Y, and Z. Maybe we don't need to be as severe about this as we have been. And some of these people are the same people who were being very severe all along, but they're not going to walk that back. They're going to act like this is something new. And my belief is that, you know, with, with uh, progressivism, I'm going to guess that some of the more moderate liberals who have gotten hijacked by the more extreme progressive views, those are the people you have to worry about executing, <laughs> you know, the masters. Like in 10 years... I can, I can see moderate liberals being like, well, hey, we're killing all the socialists because they lied. And I can see myself being like, hey, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe you shouldn't, uh, maybe you shouldn't behead those people. I can easily see that playing out because these people aren't committed. They're weak links in a chain. They've been chained together, but they're weak links. And weak links don't stay put. They break. 
It's why there's a long history of small factions that are built strong actually persevering over larger factions that are built weak. Because when you coerce people to believe the way you believe, when you recruit people during a mass psychosis, when you guilt someone into doing something, you're not creating a true believer. You're creating weak links in a chain, and those break very easily. So I can see this chain breaking. I can see the current chain of radical progressivism breaking, and I can see some of the more otherwise reasonable and moderate liberals being like, hey, wait a second. Those people, those people screwed us over. Let's kill them. And then I can see the people like me being like, this is me being self-righteous, but I can see me being like, wait, wait, wait a second. Don't do that. Don't execute them. You know, I can easily see that situation playing out. But, uh, you know, as much as I have seen a little bit, some people kind of changing their tune about Coroni and about the new variant, I also get stories like my friend in Canada saying that they're imposing a 10 p.m. curfew on everybody and you can't even go for a walk. And initially you could walk your dog after 10 p.m., but now as of today, they're telling you you can't even walk your dog. You're not going to infect somebody. If the concern is infecting people, well, you're going out for a walk at night. If you're going for a walk at night and the streets are crowded with people, something else is up. But to stop people from going for walks after 10 p.m. or leaving the house, it's pointlessly restrictive and it's cruel. It's inhuman. It's misanthropy. So as much as I can see where some people are walking things back a little bit without admitting they're walking things back, the situation has changed. Not really. Maybe you're just coming to a new realization after demonizing people who believed what you believed all along. But the reality is you can never call people out for it. If 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 people go back to normal following a mass psychosis, you really can't point that out to them. Hey, you you did this. You said this, this, and this. You can't really do that. They'll just, they'll act like nothing ever happened. They'll just go, what? Huh? I didn't think that. Because they weren't really committed in the first place. They were caught up. They weren't thinking. So all you can do is just remember. I mean, I, I don't believe in holding grudges, but I don't forget. I can forgive, but I never forget. And I have not forgotten who has been caught up in a mass psychosis. And somebody would say that about me for saying this. All of the things I've said here, they would say, you're radicalized. It's like the guy who, he was actually the box person as well. Turns out they, they're kind of my examples. But the box person is the same guy who, when I said that I uh, am opposed to censorship, and I, I take a very absolute philosophy toward free speech. He was like, man, I haven't seen you for a few years. And, you know, I, I we're hearing stories about people getting radicalized. And I'm just a little worried. You know, like when people say things like that, uh, you want to you want to say to them, who's become radicalized? You think I've become radicalized? You know, I'm, I'm exactly where I've always been. Not that I haven't changed in some ways, not that I haven't evolved in some ways, not that my views are unshakable, 
but you're worried about me being radicalized. Look where, look what you've become. Look what you've become. But you can't point that out to people. You just create an, another needless conflict when you do that. But you can't forget it. You cannot forget who this has happened to and how it has infected them. Because you remember that it could happen again at any time. So as much as I celebrate the idea of collective psychosis dissipating, and it always does, no matter how intense and severe a collective psychosis seems at any given time, it does eventually dissipate. But I'm not going to forget who was infected by it. I'm not going to forget who was participating in it. Because I know that that person is susceptible. I know that at any time, that person could be in that same exact position about something else. And I just simply can't trust that. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free 